How's everybody feeling this morning? Uh, you know, the bulletin says that we're going to be preaching on, and I'm going to preach on uh, Philippians 1, and I will get there. But actually, I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 5. Psalm 5. Give you a little uh, insight on the, on the, on, on the workings, the behind-the-scenes workings. Um, so it was decided that I would go up and, and, and play guitar and sing during that, that tune. Um, but then uh, my glasses broke. And so I'm like, I'm trying to like hold my glasses like up so that they don't, like I'm playing the guitar. And then I realized that I didn't plug in the guitar, which it kind of projects, which is okay. But the guitar, um, the, the, the cord that connects it to the sound system actually usually is the thing that makes sure that the strap doesn't fall off. So I'm playing the guitar up there and I'm thinking, gosh, I hope I don't start playing. And then all of a sudden the guitar falls off the strap and goes, Dung! you know. So I'm like holding this together. I'm holding my like glasses up. It's a lot of fun doing the work of the Lord. So, good morning. So, uh, yeah, Psalm chapter 5. Welcome to week 3 of our series, Equip, Inspire, and Influence. This is a series that is dedicated to leadership. It's a series dedicated on influence, even if you are not... Uh, a leader of something formally, you are still a person who has influence in your sphere of living at your job, at your school, at your, in your sports team, or wherever you find yourself doing life. It's a series on leadership, therefore, and influence and building for God's kingdom. Last week we talked about how um, we don't build God's kingdom, God builds God's kingdom, but we build for it. We have the freedom to build for it. We have the freedom to be involved in these things that he's prepared. Ephesians 2.10 says, the workmanship that he's prepared for us since the beginning of time. So in the first week, we talked about Jesus's master principle. He said that if you seek to be a leader, or perhaps a person of influence, either directly or indirectly, then the call there is servanthood. Jesus said, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes um, to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, the Apostle Paul repeatedly picked up on this theme in his letters, specifically to the church of Philippi, which we're going to get to some more of Philippians in a bit, where he tells them, he says, guys, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, humility. Regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you not look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. That's a, that's a pretty, like, yeah, Jesus did this thing. Jesus had this mindset. Uh, we should as well. And Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But instead, he, he emptied himself. He, he took on the form of a slave, Paul says, being born in human likeness and then being found in that human form. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a Roman cross. 
That's what it means to have a mind of Christ Jesus. Paul then goes on to describe how it was through this sacrificial obedience that Christ was exalted. It was through servanthood. It was through humility. That's how God became king. And last week, we took a step back and then we spoke on this uh, topic of purpose itself. And, And what does it mean that you and I have purpose for God's kingdom? We talked about how each of us have been given this small garden to till and keep. This garden might be a workplace. It might be a classroom. It might be a sports team. It might be your church. You might have had some sort of formal position of leadership in in such an environment. Maybe you're a boss. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you're a coach. Maybe you're a pastor. Or you might simply exercise this sphere of influence from the point of view of someone who is an example for others. Next week, Jason's going to talk to us about leadership and influence when you're not in charge. Some of the most powerful leaders in history were those who knew that they could do little more than the right thing at a difficult time. And as someone such as uh, Rosa Parks found out, that too can offer something powerful for others to follow. That's a powerful influence. Regardless... How would you describe your own influence over the garden that you've been placed in? Would you use words such as sacrifice? Would you use words like integrity or diligence or humility? Or would you use maybe more negative descriptors um, to describe this work? For sin is also a powerful source of influence. While at times, seeing sin in others, it can kind of wake us up and maybe help us fly straight or whatever. We, we so often, we can find that sin is contagious. And it's able to spread like wildfire, just like gossip turns into lies being spread or one, I don't know, harmless beer that you know you've had a problem with alcohol in the past. Well, then that turns into 10 and then that turns into whole other, other problems. We tell ourselves that we're not the only ones who look at that website. We're not the only one that cheats on our taxes. We're not the only one who speeds on this road. And suddenly the actions of others turn into just enough justification for our own sinful behavior. Because, you see, I know this is true because I know it is true of me. Still, there is another way. And that's what I want us to meditate on this morning. I want us to think further about the effect that we have on others' lives. I want us to think about the choices that we make in regards to the words we use. Most specifically, I want us to consider why we do this rather peculiar habit of praying together. Before we think about praying together, though, I want us to consider prayer itself for a moment. I mean, isn't it incredible that we're able to talk with God? We're able to speak and we're able to listen. God speaks to us verbally through his word and he speaks non-verbally through an infinite amount of means that are before us at any given moment if we just have eyes to see. Through prayer, though, we show God adoration, we show him praise, we confess our sins and we repent. We gratefully accept his gifts and offer thanksgiving, and we humbly offer petitions, we humbly offer supplication. We ask God for things, not, not arrogantly, but yes, boldly. 
So turn with me to that Psalm 5. Listen for these four characteristics of prayer. Think of the word. We've talked about this before. Think of the the term acts, A-C-T-S. As we go through this song, listen for adoration, listen for confession, listen for thanksgiving, listen for supplication. Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord, give heed to my sighing. Listen to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I plead my case to you and I watch. The psalmist begins with supplication, asking that God would give ear to his cry. He acknowledges the Lord as his king and his God and mentions that it is to him alone that he prays. And even after he acknowledges this reality of his pain, his suffering, his sighing, still he then declares that he knows who God is. And he knows that God hears him. When he makes these supplications first thing in the morning, the psalm clearly acknowledges the presence of the unrighteous, but look to, he looks to God alone for the path of salvation. Verse 7 says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in all of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make, way stri- make your way straight before me. See, here is a poet who sees the wickedness of this world and he names it. He knows that he's called to live a better way. And then he trusts that God will lead him. Check out Psalm 138. Churning quite a bit, a few pages here. 138. I give you thanks, O Lord. With my whole heart. Before the gods I sing you a praise. I bow down uh, toward your holy temple. And give thanks to your name. For your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted your name and your word above everything. On the day I called you answered me. You increased my strength of soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you O Lord. For they have heard the words of your mouth. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he perceives from far away. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve me against the wrath of my enemies. You stretch out your hand, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. So what did you hear there? Thanksgiving, of course. Certainly humility, adoration. Did you notice that line, before the gods I sing your praise? You know, one of the requisites of Christian prayer is that our prayers should be directed to God alone. When we use the term God, we might think of that as shorthand of praying to the triune God, the one God who reveals himself in three distinct persons. Or we might pray to those distinct persons of the Godhead. So oftentimes you'll hear folks pray to the Father, our Father, or to Lord Jesus, or the Holy Spirit. Praying to anything or anyone else other than God is idolatry. 
Now, when the psalmist uses the words, before the gods I sing your praise, you might wonder why the text seems to reference other gods. I mean, isn't that problematic? Even if the context of the psalm clearly places God above said gods, the fact that it mentions other gods might make you raise an eyebrow. But I think we can relax. The psalmist might be using some creative license here, but he's clearly making a point. The Lord Yahweh is the God of the universe, the God of the holy temple, the God who will answer you, the God who deserves our thanksgiving and our adoration. Humanity, though, is very good about putting other things in place of God. We are very good of creating our own little gods that we want to worship. Our Lord desires that we come to him and that we accept no substitutes. One more psalm. Turn with me to Psalm 32. Thirty-two. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silence, my body wasted away, though my groaning, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the summer heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide, I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you at a time of distress. The rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries. Cries of deliverance. Clearly, this psalm is referencing confession. But of course, there's also hints of adoration, thanksgiving, and supplication in there. I love that line in verse 3 that says, While I kept silence, my body wasted away. It says, My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. So often, We think of confession as the thing that we do when we're ashamed of what we've done. We think of how even if it's necessary, it's also painful uh, for us to own up to this way that we've sinned against God and against others. But here, isn't it cool how the psalmist have a a different conclusion, a uh, a different view of the confession. He says, here I was in my sin and I was drying up in the heat of the summer sun, but then I came to God and it was like a cool drink of water on a hot summer day. It was refreshing to confess. It was rejuvenating to confess. It was invigorating to confess. The psalm begins with the words, happy are those whose transgression is forgiven. Not ashamed or embarrassed, but happy are those who made the courageous choice of owning up to their own sins. Happy, joyful, refreshed. It's kind of a different view on confession. It's kind of a different view on prayer. So adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, these are the tenets of prayer, and it should be said that they absolutely can and should be ways that you personally converse with God. But 
they do not merely have implications for our vertical relationship with God. These tenets should be a part of our horizontal dimensions as well, the horizontal dimensions of prayer. This morning, New Hope took part in a special prayer time along with churches across the country um, that was sparked by the National Association of Evangelicals. And uh, the, the, the NAE is an organization that acts as a sort of connective tissue to independent evangelical churches like ours. And they begin with the assumption, they said they began with the assumption that Jesus changes everything. They assume that Jesus is Lord and that he has called his church to care about the things that break his heart. Things, for instance, like people saying horribly hurtful things to each other in the guise of political rhetoric. Things like the reality of suffering around the world and in our own backyard. Christ's desire is that we spread the good news of his kingdom to the ends of the globe That begins with the choices that we make and the community that we build here. See, this is why we have house churches. This is why we study scripture together. This is why we worship together. This is why we serve together. And humbly, yet boldly, we approach the eternal throne of God together through prayer. Praising him for who he is. Confessing our sins to each other because of who we are. Thanking him for the incredible ways that he makes himself known in our lives. And requesting that he give us the guidance to seek first his kingdom. As we request and look for these answers of our supplication. One of my favorite passages in the Bible comes from the first chapter of Philippians. A truly revolutionary letter that I think all Christians should be quite familiar with. If you were ever going to try to memorize an entire book of the Bible, I think Philippians might just be the one that I'd tell you to try. It contains the kind of words you just want in your soul. Paul is writing from some sort of prison or house arrest probably in Rome or maybe Ephesus. And at this point in Paul's imprisonment, he'd be reliant on others for his own well-being. And the Philippians had a hand in keeping Paul alive during this season of persecution. So there's practical lines thrown in here and there throughout the letter, but the fellowship that Paul feels with the church in Philippi was beyond utility or even thanks or even grateful behavior, um, the thanks of a grateful benefactor. Paul, he speaks of koinonia, fellowship, partnership, sharing, communion. It's not just friendship. He sees the church in Philippi as his intimate co-laborers in the gospel. He begins this letter with a, with a standard greeting, as, as Paul does in all his letters, of, of grace and peace. But then he says this. And listen again for those acts, those elements of prayer as we think about this. I thank my God every time I remember you. Constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. He says, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. 
It's right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart for all of you share in God's grace with me. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I long for all of you with the compassion of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer. That your love may overflow more and more with the full insight to help you determine what is best. So the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, blameless having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. So here, the heart of the apostle is on display right off the bat. Here is a man who is clearly, utterly, passionately committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and whatever love and appreciation that he's showing to his friends in Philippi, it all sits within the context of his love and appreciation for God who he feels is a present companion even as Paul sits in prison. He feels a more intimate connection with them through the sharing of the gospel. He feels a more intimate worship of God because of his connection to them. Here is an example of a man whose prayers for others is saturated in love for God. This is living out the great commandment from a prison cell. Paul is loving God and he's loving others. And you can't really tell where one ends and the other begins because he's doing them both at the same time. He's loving God and he's pouring out his life. He's pouring out his passion for his friends, the Philippians, at the same time as he's pouring out his love and praise of God. He said, for God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. I mean, think about that sentence. That sentence literally sandwiches his love for the Philippians in between his passion for God and his love for Jesus Christ. As a leader, as a person of influence, what would it mean for us to pray with that sort of love? What would it mean for us to pray with that kind of compassion towards the people that we live with or work with or learn alongside or fight alongside? How powerful would it be for a parent to tell a child that, you know what, I'm I'm confident that the one who began a good work in you, he's going to carry it through to completion. I trust my God in that. Even in the midst of a difficult season, are we able to be so grounded in our love for God that we can sit with another person and say, I know this is hard. I know you are in pain. And the truth is, it may not get easier anytime soon. And my prayer for you as well is that this pain would end soon. But I am confident in this, that God finishes what he starts He began a good work in you, and I have the faith to know that he is going to see it through. And you know that he's faithful. What would it look like for a teacher to pray for the students in their classroom? Yes, even a public school. What would it look like for an employer to dedicate a portion of their week to praying for the people who work for them. 
I mean, this is a crazy idea. What would it mean for an employer as they're sitting down and writing and signing their paychecks to every time they go through for that employer to pray for that employee? That they would be using their resources wisely, that they would be growing, that they would be a better person for having worked at that company. And yes, we want companies to, to make money and we want them to be sources of, of industry and fruitful industry. And that's wonderful. But what would it look like for an employer, for a leader to be passionate about integrity in the workplace? There's lots of different ways that we could be thinking about praying in our own spheres of influence. I can say from personal experience that Prayer is not something that comes easy to me. As a pastor, that may be surprising. It may not. But I'm in awe of other people, many of the people that are in this room right now, who seem to just love prayer, who seem to go at it almost naturally, who seem to, like, just that's their impulse to just, I've got to pray, I've got to pray, I just want to get together and pray. You know, um, uh, many of the, the women in our church get together, I think it's on the first Saturday of the month, and just pray. And that's just, that it, I'm in awe of that. And um, it, to be honest with you, I'll confess, it's, it's, it's something that I need to be intentional about. It's not something that comes that naturally to me. But I take heart in this. I take heart in the fact that the Holy Spirit redeems whatever it is that I say. Whatever, whatever mumbling words that I say when I pray and I feel like I just don't say the right words. I feel like, like oh wow, how can that person be so eloquent when, when they pray? But when I pray, I just feel like I'm just saying gibberish. But then I, I read this passage. Listen to this final passage from Paul in Romans. He says, for in hope we were saved. Now hope is, now, now hope That is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. And here it is. He says, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. I mean, listen to that. That the Holy Spirit, that, that when you struggle with knowing how to pray, when you struggle with getting together with a friend, and you're praying through a divorce, you're praying through some sort of like uh, really dark season for them, the Holy Spirit at the same time is, is praying with what Paul says are sighs too deep for words. The Holy Spirit cares more about this issue than we ever could. And God who searches the heart, he knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, intercedes for Christians according to the will of God. That whatever shortcoming I have, and I know I do, God is going to abundantly make up for the rest. So with that, I want to invite the worship team back up. And I want us to consider this idea of inviting the Holy Spirit into our time of prayer. One of the things that, that a Christian worship service is, it's a time of prayer. We could call it a prayer meeting. We could call it a praise meeting. We could say that's one of the things, one of the primary things that we're here to do is to pray together. And in that effect, in that effect thinking about what Paul says in Romans 
about the Spirit interceding for us, about the Spirit making up for the things that wherever we fall short, the Spirit comes in and the Spirit says, "Ah, I got it. I got it from here. You say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Please flood this place. Fill the atmosphere with your love, with your direction. Help us to seek first your kingdom. Help us to define the calling that you've given each and every one of us. Help us to see the purpose that you've given us in our lives, that you've called on for us. But then also help to see that, that you're enough. That you're enough. You're the, 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 the power that is going to, to generate that. You're going to be the one who finishes what you start. The one who began a good work is going to carry it through to completion because God finishes what he starts. In the most holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.